was such a sad, sad day for these two sisters. They were so close to their brother, Lazarus, and the sadness which they are experiencing almost seems overwhelming. In John 11 and verse 20, Jesus arrives and Martha comes to him and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The Lord said, he will rise again. She said, yes, Lord, I know that he will rise in the last day. And then you drop down and the Lord makes a statement. He who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Think about that statement for just a moment. He who lives and believes in me will never die. Lord, Lazarus is dead. Lazarus is dead. The Lord's talking about another kind of death. He's talking about a spiritual death. The one that John says in Revelation chapter 20 is the second death. And you live and you believe in the Lord and you don't have to worry about that one. I want to begin with a series of three questions this morning. Number one, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe what he says is true? I really believe that the majority of this audience believes that or you wouldn't be here. After all, we are a church of Christ. The one that belongs to him, a part of his body. If you didn't believe in Jesus, I don't believe that you would be here. Second question, do you believe what the Lord says about eternal things? Do you believe what the Lord says about heaven and about hell? You see, the truth is, the world today is in one more confused state. I want to make reference to a poll that was taken back in December of last year, December 2013. It was done by the Harris Poll. And they frequently pair with NBC News for polling's sake. And they ask the question, do you believe in God? Do you believe in heaven? Do you believe in hell? They haven't broken down by the number of times asked back in 2005, 2007, 2009, and then in 2013. And they had it broken down by various other groups. And I'm just going to summarize it real quickly for you. In 2009, 82% of the respondents said they believed in God. 82%. 2013, that's dropped to 74%. Only two or three out of every four people believe there is a God in heaven. When asked about the question, do you believe in heaven? In 2009, 75% believed in heaven. In 2013, it had dropped 68%. When asked the question, do you believe in a place called hell? 
In 2009, 61% believed that there was that place. And in 2013, 58%. You might be able to deduce from looking at these figures over the past several years, which they've been tracked, asked the same way by these same pollsters, that belief in God, belief in heaven, and belief in hell is disappearing. This morning, I am going to continue with these questions because my second question is, do you believe in hell? Do you believe there's a place where God literally will place man and punish him eternally? The reason why I ask that is because I was asked to preach a lesson on hell. Specifically with the thought in mind of is there a real place called hell and will God punish us there? This past week I have read the book, or reread again, a book that I bought several years ago called Four Views of Hell. There are people who believe that hell is only a metaphor. Only a metaphor. It just simply describes the deprivation that man will experience being away from God. But that this idea that God will somehow throw man into a fiery lake where man will suffer excruciating pain for eternity cannot happen. There's another view that says God will annihilate man. That at the end of time, God will just choose to say, Okay, you've lived a wicked life. You cease to exist. I will annihilate you. Then there's another view that says about purgatory, which is even more ridiculous than some of the others. When you start looking at this view... I think it forces us to do something. It forces us to open our Bibles and see what does God's Word say. And so I titled this lesson, Taking a Tour of Hell Through the Bible. There's a purpose for that. Quite often I will talk to people about what one sees when he goes to the Bible lands. And it never fails when people actually see it for themselves. They open their eyes and they get a visual image of it. They'll say, the Jordan River is not nearly as big as I thought it was. I can see the other shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's, it's just a big lake. Yes. Or they will say, the wilderness where John the Baptist wandered. What did he eat? Locust and wild honey. You know, as you start talking about things like that, people begin to see it as real. I believe you take a tour through hell in the Bible, you're going to see that it's real as well. But I said I had three questions. First one, do you believe in Jesus? Number two, do you believe what he teaches about eternal things, particularly with the thought of hell? And then number three, which is really, really important, do you believe that God will send you You personally, me personally, to hell if I do not do what he says to do. If that doesn't move you, I can't move you. I have no ability to do that. 
I have no ability to present any lesson that will somehow get to your psyche if that thought doesn't move you. And you say, well, why do you bring that up? I only have two points in our lesson this morning. The first one will be, why did God even make hell? Why is there a place called hell? In order to appreciate that, you've got to actually study the idea of punishment. And to understand the idea of punishment, you have to realize that man has to have the ability to choose to deserve punishment. Man has to have the ability to choose because that's the way God made us with free choice. This past week I also was listening to a lectureship where they had an open forum. They could ask questions, whatever question they wanted to ask. And one lady had submitted a question and it was phrased something like this. That's not verbatim, but very close. If God is all-powerful, why doesn't he just automatically destroy the devil and destroy all evil, all wrong, and just remove it out of the way? Then we would have no problems at all. That sounds like a good idea, doesn't it? Until you realize that God created us to be people of choice with the ability to love him freely. And someone says, well, I don't understand. You go to the ice cream store. And you say, I'd like some ice cream. The person waiting on you says, what flavor? And you say, what flavors do you have? Vanilla. Is that all? Yeah. Well, I guess I'll take vanilla then. If there were no ability to choose wrong, man couldn't choose wrong. He'd have to do what was right. But God wants man to willingly, lovingly choose to love and serve Him. And He holds out rewards and punishments. Let me illustrate that to you. You go to Genesis chapter 2, and you get to about verse 15, and God places Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And He gives them there the responsibility to keep it and to tend it. He tells them in verse 16, Of every tree that is in the garden you may freely eat. But when you get to verse 17, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat you will surely die. You see, there's a punishment. God said you do this and death is what is held out for you. Somebody said, but they didn't die. Oh, not immediately. But I guarantee you, they surely did die. Adam and Eve are not here right now. They died. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. He that sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. He that sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. You see, God holds out for man choices that he may make. That's the reason why when you and I get the punishment we deserve, 
We don't have anybody to blame but ourselves. In the book of Lamentations, chapter 3, verses 39 and 40, Jeremiah was looking back, lamenting the choices that Israel had made, particularly Judah. But he's looking back and seeing all the things that they have experienced because of their rejection of God. And here's what he asked. He said, why then should a living man complain? A man for the punishment of his sins. Let us search and consider our ways and let us return unto the Lord. Why should I complain if I am punished? If the teacher tells me that if I goof off, I'm going to fail. If I fail, guess whose fault that is? It's mine. I chose it. If I am lost eternally, I'm being punished for a choice that I made. Or probably a series of choices. Hell is God's punishment for the wicked. I'd like for you to turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. Because Peter is in this passage giving eyesight, if you will, into the realm of God. To the eternal realm, if you will, where God exists. And Peter said, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and deliver them to be reserved, or to be in chains of darkness, reserved for judgment. God cast them down. He cast them down to hell. Torments. You have to realize that that was God's punishment for the sin which they had committed. And I have to realize... As Jesus gives this parable in Matthew 25 about preparation, he talks about, he first talked about the wise and foolish virgins, then he talked about how people will be separated at the end of time. Verse 31, he said, oh, you'll separate them as a shepherd separates a sheep from the goats. He says in verse 41, then he will say to those on his left hand, depart, you cursed into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46 says, And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Why did God create hell? Because he had to have a place to punish people who made bad choices, wicked choices. Psalm 917 says, All nations, or the wicked shall be turned into hell, and all nations who forget God. Somebody says, I just don't understand the concept of punishment itself. Does it work? Why do we have punishment after all? There's several reasons I could give to you, but I can point out to you at least three from the Bible. One of the reasons why we have punishment is because of deterrence. If a person knows that punishment awaits them, it deters from that evil behavior. Paul in Romans chapter 2 was talking about the Jewish people, about how that God had given them the law, blessed them, and they had rejected it. And he says, but in accordance with your hardness and impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath and the day of wrath at the revelation 
of the righteous judgment of God. Those kind of words make me think of what a father might say to his son. We used to have a, a phrase of sort of comical, but it was very much true. You're cruising for a bruising, aching for a breaking. The choices you are making right now are setting you up for the punishment you're about to give. And you know, if, if your father tells you, if you don't change, you're fixing to get it, boy. You know what most of us did? We thought, I'm fixing to get it. I'm going to change my ways. It's going to deter me. Ezekiel 33, verses 4 and 5, gives a picture of a watchman watching for an impending destruction coming upon a city. And he says, Then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, if the sword comes and takes him away, the blood shall be upon his own head. He knew what was coming. Folks, we have to understand punishment is to deter bad behavior. People don't want to believe in hell today because they don't want it to change their behavior. They don't believe God will punish them. A second reason, according to the Bible, for punishment is for reformation. That is to correct behavior that is bad. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 10 through 11 talks about fathers, if you will. And about what fathers do to their children. And he says, For they indeed for our, a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening at the moment seems to be joyful, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields a peaceable fruit in those who have been trained by it. If I were to ask you, adults here, how many of you reformed your behavior because of your parents' discipline? Most of us would say, I used to have a smart mouth on me, but I learned real quickly I was going to get rid of that smart mouth. It reformed your behavior. It made you a better person. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, When Paul writes Corinth, he makes reference back to the man of 1 Corinthians 5 who had his father's wife. And he said, Sufficient for such a one was the punishment inflicted by the many, so that contrawise you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him. You see, here's a man who was disciplined by the church. He was punished, if you will. That's the word that was used. Punished by the church, and he changed his behavior. A third purpose for punishment is retribution. That's the one that I think most people have the most difficulty with. And that is punishment that is deserved because of bad behavior. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 10 through 15, I'm not going to use it at this point because I'm going to use it in just a moment, but I point out to you that it is deserved there because everyone's judged according to his works by the things that are written in the books. 
Same thing in Revelation chapter 14 in verse 9. I will read that passage. The third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead and on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength out of the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. They shall have no rest day or night who receives the beast or his, and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Revelation, or excuse me, Romans chapter 12 and verse 19 says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Retribution for sinful ways. But there's a second aspect that I think needs to be understood as you make this tour of hell through the Bible. You see punishment, you see where it fits in God's divine plan. I want to talk about some word pictures that one might see as he goes through the Bible. You know, if you're talking about going to a place, you come back and you can tell someone what you saw. And the words that you use are often very colorful and very vivid. And you have a, a picture in your mind because of these words that are spoken to you. I want to take some of these words and talk about them for just a few moments. The first one is hell itself. The word that is most often translated hell in our Bibles is the word Gehenna, which means the valley of the sons of Hinnom. And when you look at that word, it has some real depth of meaning. The city of Jerusalem sits on a hill. The southwest side of that city is a valley of the sons of Hinnom. History of that valley is really colorful in and of itself. Back during the Old Testament times, they made sacrifices to the god of Molech. In 2 Kings chapter 23 and verse 10, here are the words that we read. And he defiled Tophet which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or his daughter pass through the fire to Molech. There's some indication that they had a bronze, brass, hollowed out, empty idol in which they would build fire. And they built it so hot that it just became like red hot. And they would take their infants and place it in the arms of that red hot idol that was on fire. And the flesh of those babies would singe. They were offering a human sacrifice. In the book of Jeremiah chapter 7 beginning with verse 30. Here's what God's perspective of that was. For the children of Judah have done evil in my sight, says the Lord. 
They have set their abominations in the house which is called by my name to pollute it. And they have built the high place of Tophet in the valley of the son of Hinnom to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my heart. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when it will no more be called Tophet or the valley of the son of Hinnom but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury Tophet until there is no more room. The valley of slaughter. Bodies are going to be buried there in this valley. I could spend a lot of time trying to reveal a little bit of the background that you gather by studying the intertestamental period, but I'll just mention the fact that the bodies of the enemies were buried there and burned in the fire. By the time you come to the New Testament period, it's a garbage dump. They carried all their garbage out that south side of the city of Jerusalem, throwed it in that valley, and the valley was burning and kept burning because of the garbage that was there. The history of that made a perfect Illustration for a word. Gehenna. Bodies were buried there. A place of burning. It became a term that if you wanted to talk about a place of fire and death, Gehenna was it. It's the word Jesus used in Matthew 10 and verse 28. And do not fear those who can kill the body, but they cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Second term that I'd like to talk about is a, a word picture. A lake of fire and brimstone. When you think of fire and brimstone, immediately comes to your mind what occurred in the book of Genesis with Sodom and Gomorrah. God rained down from heaven fire and brimstone or sulfur. And the burning of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were, were visible from a distance. In fact, all the way from Hebron. The smoke rising up. Only three people survived that. Lot and his two daughters. Lot's wife was to be delivered, but she turned back and became a pillar of salt. And Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. You see, that thought of fire and brimstone certainly gives with it an idea of something really, really sad. I want you to go with me to the book of Revelation for just a moment to chapter 19 and chapter 20 and chapter 21. And I want you to, if you will, for just a moment, visualize why John says what he says and the picture that he paints for us. Verse 20 of chapter 19 of Revelation. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. Go into chapter 20 now, verse 10. 
chapter 20, verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Well, they deserve it. The devil, the beast, the false prophet, they deserve it. They're wicked. We'll move with me now to chapter 21, and let's look at verse 8. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8. But the fearful, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the fornicators, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Oh man, I've come full circle now. He who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, I believe that. You talk about death that he's describing. He's describing eternal death. The second death. The burning in the lake of fire and brimstone. One more and then I'm going to bring this to a close. Let's go to Matthew chapter 25 and verse 30. Matthew, Matthew chapter 25 and verse 30. Not only does he talk about the burning of Gehenna, the lake of fire and brimstone, but he says in Matthew 25 verse 30, And cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Outer darkness. There's been a few times in my life where I've been in a place where I could not see anything. The first one that I remember is in Mammoth Cave in Kentucky. You get all the way to the end and they turn the lights out and you can't see anything. You need to think about the abandonment of being in outer darkness and how that would eventually drive you mad. The weeping and the gnashing of teeth, enough is enough, let me out. Go with me to the book of Jude now to verses 6 and 13. Jude 6 and Jude verse 13. I'd already referred previously to the angels from 2 Peter 2 and verse 4. And Jude also mentions them. He said, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain he has and left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness. For the judgment of the great day, dropping down to verse 13, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom the blackness of darkness is reserved. Alone. All alone. Suffering in the pain of fire. 
Hell's an awful place, folks. Several years ago, I thought there was a really good program. They made a television show out of it. They took some very cocky young guys who thought they were so tough to a hardened prison. And they led those young men who thought they were so tough and let them see the real gritty side of what prison life was like. The title of that show was called Scared Straight. Some of those young boys who thought they were so tough come out of there crying and sad and just all torn up because they didn't know how bad that place was. I don't think some people really realize how bad hell really is. They don't want to think about it. In fact, one of the points that was made in that four views of hell was is that the only preachers who preach on hell are people who have some sort of sadistic mentality who says, I want to see people suffer. I'm sorry, they don't know my heart. I don't want people to suffer. I don't want them to go there. Neither does God. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. I'm going to read a passage of Scripture. And when I finish that, we're going to extend the Lord's invitation. And I want you to listen carefully as we read the words of Paul in 2 Thessalonians 1, beginning with verse 7, going through verse 9. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Here's the truth. In order for you to avoid hell and get to go to heaven, you have to be a Christian and you have to be a faithful Christian. I didn't study this lesson to scare you. This lesson is presented on, this is a picture of what the Bible says about hell. But sometimes the truth does scare us. Reality can scare us. And that's a good motivator to want to do right. When we sing this invitation song, if you're not a Christian, would to God that you would just make that walk down the aisle and say, I want to be a Christian. I want to go to heaven. If you are a child of God and you look at your life and you know where you are, it's not a matter of your, your guessing. You know what you're doing. We encourage you to respond as well as together we stand and sing.